Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and to turn them open to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own one, know that there's a stack of them on the table in the foyer. We'd love to gift you with one, so grab one of those, as well as some food or water, whatever the case may be, on the way out. Uh, how many of you have ever eaten at a tapas restaurant? Now, uh, some of you have, yeah? I didn't know what I was getting into. And so my initial experience in a tapas place was uh, disappointing. Because uh, I walked in, and if you don't know what tapas are, tapas originally started out as appetizers in Spain. They're these small dishes of very flavorful food. And, and, uh, but now they've become kind of the full menu in some places. Well, I walked into a tapas place, and I ordered off the menu, not knowing uh, how small the portion would be. And so when my server brought it to me, I I was uh, disappointed, and I thought she was mistaken. I said, I'm sorry, you must have given me my daughter Delaney's plate, uh, because I wouldn't have ordered something so small. I wouldn't have uh, gone after something like this. But it turned out she didn't make a mistake. That was precisely what I ordered, so she put it before me, and I started pulling out my phone and looking at Yelp for trying to find the closest all you can eat buffet, something a little more my, my speed, because uh, it was, I mean, obviously she didn't know I was, I'm a guy, and not only am I a guy, I'm an American guy, which means I'm culturally conditioned to expect excess, and so a tapas place just didn't compute with my mentality, it did not commute, compute with what I was familiar with, but the moment I took the food off the plate, as small as it was, and the moment I, I placed it in my mouth, I mean, the something exploded on my tongue. I mean, there was such a rich flavor of just garlic and cumin and cumin and uh, and chilies. Just this this incredible fusion of flavors that just uh, just exploded on my mouth, and it just opened my eyes to a whole new world of food. So that although my initial experience was disappointment when I saw how small it was when I took it in. And I began to discover that tapas isn't the kind of food that you just wolf down like a bag of potato chips. Uh, it's something you are to savor slowly. It's something you are to take in and to consider as you eat every small, single bite. And as I did so, again, it opened me up to a whole new world. One of the, perhaps, one of the ways that sometimes our hearts respond to the nature of God's kingdom is initially disappointment. Because when we hear the way in which Jesus talks about his kingdom in the Gospel of Mark, he doesn't talk about his kingdom in an incredible kind of way. In fact, Jesus did not serve the kingdom of God to the world on this incredible platter. He brought it in tapas form. He brought it in a tiny form. He brought it to us in a way that we might not have, the world did not expect because the world did not have a prior reference point. You see, the world was quite familiar with kingdoms. We know what it means for a kingdom to rule and a kingdom to reign. The first century world, they were familiar with the Roman Empire. They were familiar with the previous empires that ruled the earth at different stages in human history, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. They were familiar with these domineering powers that ruled the known world. And so when Jesus stepped onto the scene in Galilee and began talking to them about the kingdom of God, in their minds and in their imaginations, they probably thought, well, it's going to be like one of those places. He's going to bring the kingdom of God in full force and in full measure. He's going to drop it on the world the way Beyonce dropped lemonade, just all at once, bam, taking everything by storm. But that's not what he did. Instead, he communicated the dynamics and the nature of God's kingdom in a way that caught people off guard, but in a way that cued them into a deeper reality. 
it cued them into the rhythms of the kingdom of God, the way in which God realizes his redemptive rule in the lives of his people, and ultimately in the world that is to come. And so here in Mark chapter 4, you find this dynamic where Jesus is, again, we're coming along about the third parable that's found in this chapter where Jesus is describing his kingdom. And he, as he's describing it in verse 30, he says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? And so he's asking this question because uh, in the disciples' minds, they would have perhaps pointed to something they were familiar with like another earthly kingdom. But then Jesus pivots on them, and he doesn't say, okay, I'm going to compare it to Rome, or I'm going to compare it to the Babylonians, or I'm going to compare it to the Egyptians. Instead, he draws out a mustard seed, and he says the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And so he compares the kingdom of God to a small mustard seed. And in this parable, he contrasts the small, kind of obscure manner in which the kingdom of God starts in the world and the glorious ending when the kingdom of God is fully realized in the world that is to come. So it's a fascinating description of the nature of God's kingdom. And if you and I are going to allow the kingdom of God to just to touch down on our spiritual senses, it will awaken us to a reality that is hopeful. It will awaken us to a reality that, yes, requires faith. And it will open us to a reality of something we're looking to enjoy in, in the world that is to come. I mean, you just consider this, the nature of God's kingdom. We want to understand what the kingdom of God is like. I mean, it's a pretty big deal. I mean, if we want to know about any kingdom, we want to know about the kingdom of God. If we want to know about any people group on the planet, we want to know about the kingdom of God. What is it? What it is like? And here, Jesus reminds us that the kingdom of God is an alien kingdom. He says the nature of the kingdom of God is one of an alien dynamic. It is an alien kingdom in the sense that just as a seed must come into the soil from outside of the soil, the kingdom of God is an alien kingdom in that it must come into the world from outside of the world. This means that you and I are not wise to look for the kingdom of God by initially looking within the heart or within the soul. I was in a coffee shop last week overhearing a conversation a barista was having with one of the customers, and she was providing counsel for this young woman's life, and she was distraught, and she was uh, anxious about her life and where it was heading, and and the barista looked at her and said, you know, we live in a world where everybody's telling you to look out of your, outside of yourself to find truth, to find some semblance of reality, to look outside of yourself. We're, we're conditioned to do that. She says, but I think you should look inside yourself. You should look within and determine truth by looking within. And, and I was overhearing this conversation, and, you know, the barista was partly right. Uh, well, no, the barista was entirely wrong. The, the young woman was, in, was partly right. You see, to discover truth, to discover reality, if the, if the kingdom of God is an alien kingdom that must come into the world from outside of the world, then that means we have to look, yes, outside of ourselves, but we don't necessarily just look outside into the world. We must look beyond the world. We must look above the world. 
because the kingdom of God comes into the world from outside of it. So it wasn't that this girl was distraught and anxious because she, was, because she wasn't looking inside of herself. She was looking into the world that was calling her outside of herself. She just wasn't looking far enough. She wasn't looking high enough. Because the kingdom of God is an alien kingdom. The redemptive reign of Jesus comes to the world from outside of the world. The redemptive reign of King Jesus comes to a person from outside the person. So it comes to us from outside of us as the seed comes into the soil from outside the soil. This is why when Jesus was having his conversation with Pilate in John chapter 18, they're talking about the nature of truth. And they're talking about truth. They're also talking about the nature of Jesus' kingship. And so Jesus is standing before Pilate, and, and Pilate's asking him all these questions about what everybody is saying about him. They're saying, I, I hear you're supposed to be the king of the Jews. That doesn't really mean anything to me because I'm not Jewish, but are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus looked at him, and, and in this exchange, he, he tells him, he says, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom, you, you can't look... In around the world and find something that's comparable to my kingdom because my kingdom is not of this world. It comes into it from outside of it. And because of that, because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, it does not share in the nature of this world. And our lives, when we step into the kingdom of God and it begins to take root and produce fruit within us, our lives suddenly uh, do not necessarily harmonize with particular rhythms and priorities and values of this world. This is why we would say that the kingdom of God, if it's an alien kingdom, it's also characterized by alien values, otherworldly values. The kingdom of God prioritizes what we do not naturally prioritize. The kingdom of God values what you and I do not naturally value. It's an alien kingdom characterized by alien or otherworldly values. For example, God's kingdom is a kingdom of grace. God's kingdom is a kingdom of grace. It says that its citizens, if you want to participate in the kingdom, if you want to be a part of what God is doing in the world and in the world that is to come, it's, you can do so not because you measure up to some religious standard. You can do so not because you've knocked it out of the ballpark in your efforts to be a moral good person. He says, my kingdom is characterized by alien values, and one of those alien values that is utterly foreign to the world is this concept of grace. This is why earlier in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is describing those who would inhabit the kingdom, he begins by saying, blessed, this word of grace, blessed are those, or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say blessed are those who measure up. He doesn't say blessed are those who do enough. He doesn't say blessed are those who accomplish some goal. He says blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And in that moment, he does not mean that the poor in spirit are materially poor. He's referring to the human condition that we all share in common, that left to ourselves, we are impoverished because there's no resource within us that we can draw upon to commend ourselves to God. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. In other words, to be poor in spirit is a lot like a black hole. I'm fascinated with black holes because black holes, uh, I don't really know, I don't understand them. I don't think many, uh, many people do understand a black hole, but you know that a black hole is basically a place in space where the force of gravity pulls, pulls so hard that light cannot get out. 
And because it pulls so hard, light cannot get out, and it devours all matter and particles within reach. Well, to be poor in spirit means that there's a sense in which sin has created a black hole within the soul. It has devoured any glimmer or any hint of righteousness or uh, whatever standard we might want to use to commend ourselves to God, to enter his kingdom with. He says, no, you, you don't have that within you. Sin devours your sense of righteousness. Sin devours anything that you would like to draw upon to commend yourself to God. This is why we would say that God's kingdom is an alien kingdom. It must come into you from outside of you. To find God's kingdom, you do not look within, you look without. You look to Christ. You look to the message that he's sharing in the gospel. You look to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus to see his redemptive reign realized within you. So we see that the kingdom of God is an alien value. It's characterized by grace. It comes to us not because we are deserving, but because God is good. It comes to us not because we have begged him to give it to us. It comes to us because Jesus has gracefully done everything necessary to secure God's reign in our lives and in our families and in our church. And so we hold on to that. But then also we consider the alien values of the kingdom. Not only is it marked out by grace, but it is a kingdom where, get this, this makes God's kingdom utterly distinct from any other kingdom or power in the world, in the kingdom of God, servants are actually outserved by their king. You don't see a world like this in the world that is. You don't see a kingdom like this. You don't see a president like this. You don't see a ruler like this. A place where its servants and its citizens is actually outserved by their king. This is why all throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus is presented as a suffering servant. He has come not to be served, but to serve. But to serve how? To serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. Our king is a servant and he outserves us in the kingdom of God. This is such a liberating truth because this means that you as a follower of Jesus do not have to keep up with the Joneses as it relates to your service and your ministry. This means that you can rest in what Jesus has done for you and then live out of that rather than trying to live towards it. You will never outserve your Savior. Don't let your pride convince you otherwise. Let the Savior serve you. Let the Savior save you. This is what He does. This is what grace insists. Say that I need help. I need salvation. And Jesus says, I'm here and I willingly give it to you. So in John chapter 13, right before Jesus goes to trial and he's arrested and he's eventually brought before Pilate and tried and crucified and, and all that goes down, he has a moment with his disciples and he actually does something that shocks everyone in the room. He takes this moment to model service to them and so he begins to wash their feet. And so one by one, he goes from one disciple to the next, just washing the dirt and the crud off of their stinky feet. But then when he gets to one disciple, one disciple doesn't understand this aspect of the kingdom of God. He doesn't understand how Jesus has come to outserve us. And so when he gets to Peter, Peter says, no, I, you can't do this. Do not wash my feet. This is too unbecoming of you. And, and then Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, if I do not wash your feet, you can have no part with me. If I do, if I do not cleanse you, you cannot participate in my kingdom. So Peter had to check his pride and let the Savior serve him the way the Savior wanted to serve him. 
And this is essentially what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is essentially what it means to believe the gospel. It means to let yourself be served by the Savior. Let him outserve you. You don't have to prove yourself in the kingdom of God. Jesus has proven you himself through what he has done in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. The Savior, the King in the kingdom of God, always outserves the citizens in the kingdom. But then you think about another value that's unique to the kingdom of God, a place that that sets it utterly apart, that attributes to its alien nature, and that's the fact that the kingdom of God, this redemptive reign, it is a kingdom that is advanced by faith, not by force. And this is important. Maybe not so important immediately to you as far as your felt needs are concerned, but there are groups in the world that think the kingdom of God, and however they perceive it and however they understand it, can be perceived by force. Some extreme groups and certain religious systems in the world, they try to do this. They try to establish their understanding of God's world, God's reign, through the use of force. So they take up arms, and they commit violent acts, and they go to war, and they do those types of things. But remember Jesus before Pilate. Just return there for a moment. And Jesus, as he's having this conversation with Pilate, and he's talking about how his kingdom is not of this world, he says this to him. He says, if it were, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. It's not a kingdom that is advanced through force. It is a kingdom that is advanced through faith. When you and I begin to live by faith in the world that is, sowing the seed of the gospel, as we've talked about over the past couple of weeks, God's kingdom comes, God's kingdom grows, his redemptive reign is realized in men and women, not because we force them into submission, but we love them into it. This is the way of the kingdom of God. This is the way a church serves her city not by forcing submission, not by beating people into submission, whether it be physically or verbally or whatever the case may be. We love people into the kingdom. This is what faith does. And as we seek to advance the kingdom of God by living lives of faith, loving people the way Jesus loves them, telling Jesus' story, doing those dynamic themes, we recognize that any resistance or any opposition we face in the world that is, it is not a resistance that we meet with force. It is a resistance we meet by faith because the kingdom of God is advanced by faith, not by force. So we humble ourselves, we give ourselves to the word, and we love people in light of Jesus and who he's called us to be in the gospels. But not only do you see this dynamic about the God, God's kingdom being an alien kingdom, the kingdom of God is also a progressive kingdom. The kingdom of God is a progressive kingdom. Now, before some of you get really excited about the fact I use the word progressive and others of you get really angry or frustrated about the word progressive, understand I'm not using that word in any political sense. You see, the kingdom of God cannot fit in your political box. Whether you are left-wing, right-wing, Republican, Democrat, whatever the case may be, the kingdom crushes every box. It is its own box. You cannot fit it into your ideology. So I'm not using the word progressive Politically, I'm using the word progressive agriculturally. I'm using the word progressive the way Jesus illustrates his kingdom, not only in this parable with the mustard seed, but also in last week's parable. And that is that the kingdom of God grows progressively in the world. See, everyone in Jesus' immediate sphere as he's telling this parable, they assumed that the kingdom of God was going to come in a flash. It was going to come in an instant. It was going to appear in the world all at once. And that the kingdom of God was going to focus entirely on the national state of Israel by establishing them as a 
as a nation that would rule other nations in the world. But Jesus is saying that's not what my kingdom is about. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom first. And it grows progressively. This is why Jesus could say in Mark chapter 1 verse 15 that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the, the kingdom of God has come. Jesus can say that. And he was right. The kingdom of God appeared in the person of Jesus. But what's interesting is you read further in the Gospel of Mark, you get into Mark chapter 14, verse 25, and then Jesus talks about the kingdom in a way that seems to contradict what he says in chapter 1. Because in Mark chapter 14, verse 25, he says, Truly I say to you, talking to his disciples, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So which is it? Jesus has your kingdom come, or is your kingdom still coming? And Jesus says, yes. My kingdom has come, and my kingdom is still coming. Because inherent to the nature of my kingdom is this progression. And so Jesus' kingdom came first with Jesus' arrival. And Jesus' kingdom will come in its fullest form when Christ returns, when he comes back. The return of Jesus will usher this in. Now consider the contrast here. Think about this. Jesus' kingdom came with Jesus. It will be fully realized in the future. It, is, it has come. It's still coming. And then you think about the parable. He compares it to a mustard seed, which was the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Now, don't they make too much of that. I know some of you know there are smaller seeds than the mustard seed in the world. Jesus isn't speaking technically here. He's speaking proverbially. He's using an image and a proverb that was very familiar in the first century uh, and perceived by all of his hearers to be the smallest seed on the earth. And so he takes this, draws an analogy with it, and he says it goes into the ground, but then it yields a growth that is utterly disproportionate to how it began. And so this is the progressive nature of the kingdom of God. It starts small, but the end result is utterly disproportionate to what, how it began. And this is important because you want to think about how the kingdom of God began. The kingdom of God started with a baby being born to a teenage mom in Bethlehem. The kingdom of God appeared in the world in the person of Jesus who was raised in a podunk town called Nazareth. Not an impressive space, not a, an attraction. You didn't take trips. You didn't go out of your way to visit Nazareth. The kingdom of God appeared in the world through a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem, a, a teenager raised in Nazareth, and then when Jesus shows up in Galilee, he's a grown 30-year-old man give or take, and as he shows up, he's not living the high life. He spends most of his life in ministry in abject poverty. He spends most of his life in ministry being rejected by the people he came to redeem. More people rejected Jesus than received Jesus. More people pushed back against Jesus than pressed into Jesus as he journeyed through his ministry. And then, not only is he saying the kingdom of God has come, and you see this guy living a life that seems small, it seems obscure, it doesn't seem to be having the impact uh, that the kingdom of God would have on the world, and then it comes to the end, and Jesus is nailed to a cross, and he dies crucified. And to die crucified means to die a shameful death, an embarrassing death. And a death. Good people didn't die on crosses. Kings certainly didn't. Yet that's precisely how Jesus died. But you also know that although Jesus died on the cross, three days later he rose from the grave. And when he did, we would come to see that he's now the first fruit of the kingdom of God. He's giving us a glimpse of where our bodies and our lives are heading in the future. 
But then he returned to the right hand of the Father and he tells you and I to go forth and advance his kingdom, to sow the seed of the gospel, to proclaim the message of his life, death, and resurrection. And as we do so, God's kingdom grows progressively. But understanding that God's kingdom grows progressively requires that you and I exercise patience with the process. Because the kingdom of God entered the world through a suffering servant. And as you and I give ourselves to following Jesus in this world, that's the form our lives will take. We will live lives of suffering servants. People will push back against our message. Not everyone will receive God's kingdom with celebration and clamors of praise. Many people will push back and protest. There will be tension. There will be opposition. There will be struggle as the kingdom of God grows in the world. But here's our hope. Though the kingdom of God starts small and it grows in relative obscurity and it's never really on top of the world system until Christ returns, we want to consider how, yes, though we may live our lives in pursuit of the suffering servant, the king who outserves the citizens of his kingdom, we know there's coming a day when Jesus returns, and when he does, his return will be utterly disproportionate from his first arrival. We will hardly recognize Jesus when he returns because there will be such a difference between how he comes back. Hold your spot in Mark chapter 4 and turn over to Revelation chapter 19, verse of 19 real quick and we'll just give you a glimpse of this picture that John paints that he receives about Christ's return and he paints a fascinating picture and in this picture we're not seeing Jesus coming as a suffering servant we're seeing him come in this moment as a conquering king as a victorious uh, ruler not only of Israel but of the whole world check it out in verse 11 it says then I saw heaven opened And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's an utterly different picture from his first entrance into the world. It's the picture of a conquering king who's come to set the world right and he's going to set the world right right by putting nations in their place. Any earthly power that stands opposed to the rhythms and the realities of the kingdom of God will fall. But every people group that submits to the reality of God's redemptive reign in Jesus will not fall in that moment. They will step into life in that moment, enjoying the world that Jesus will bring in with him, the world that is described in the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 20, on down to chapter 22. This place where 
God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, this place where God will eradicate every hint of sin and suffering and oppression and injustice in the world, this king is going to leverage his power for that purpose. And we're going to enjoy the kingdom of God in a way where our experience with God is not hindered or sullied by everything that makes life miserable now. We will worship him for all eternity in the kingdom that he will usher in in that moment. And the reality of his kingdom will be utterly disproportionate then than it is even now. So in the meantime, we give ourselves in faith, we give ourselves in hope, we serve this kingdom, knowing that whatever difficulty we face, we know that the win, the, the win is coming. We know that Jesus will return. And what's fascinating about this picture in Mark is that when Jesus does return, he's going to rally a remnant of people from every corner on the earth. I love this aspect of Mark chapter 4. You get into verse 32. Listen to what he says there. He says, Yet when it is sown, it grows, grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. He gives this image of birds making nests in the shade of these large branches. Now, when you read Jesus' parable, he has a tendency to include details in his parables that don't make a lot of sense to, to, to the natural way you would talk about a mustard seed and how it grows. And so here he talks about birds making nests in its shade. And so he's getting, he's being very intentional about what he's trying to communicate in this moment and what he's saying is that when his kingdom comes when it is fully realized that kingdom will be an inclusive kingdom it will be an inclusive kingdom in the sense that every people group on the planet will be represented there every people on the planet will partake in the worship of the kingdom of god this is why the image of birds making nests in its shade, this is, a, this is an image that echoes back to the prophet Ezekiel's writings in the Old Testament, where he talks about birds as representing other nations and other earthly powers. And listen to what he says in a couple of spots. I'll just read these to you. You don't have to turn here, but Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 23. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird, every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. And then later in Ezekiel chapter 31, he clarifies who these birds are. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its bows. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young and under its shadow lived all great nations. Do you see what Jesus is saying about his kingdom in the parable? He's saying my kingdom is an inclusive kingdom. It will be represented by all peoples. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue will sing the praise of King Jesus, will benefit from the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He's saying my kingdom is an inclusive kingdom, and this is huge for us in a world marked by racism. This is huge for us in a world marked by nationalism. This is huge for us in a world comprised of kingdoms that build walls and borders around themselves. Understanding that the kingdom of God has no borders, it has no walls, but it does have a door, and his name is Jesus. And this door can be walked through by every person on the planet, regardless of the color of your skin, what language you speak, where you were born on this planet. Any person may walk through the door that is Jesus and enjoy the life in his kingdom. And so, and Jesus in this parable is guaranteeing that moment to come. When my kingdom is consummated, all peoples will be represented there. 
And as you and I enjoy that reality, we begin to find any barriers we're putting up between us and others beginning to crumble. All of a sudden, we're more inclined to love people who don't look like us. All of a sudden, we're more inclined to love people who might not walk like us or talk like us. We're able to love all peoples because God's kingdom is an inclusive kingdom. One of my prayers for the Hallows Church is that we would be an inclusive place that everyone who walks through the door of Jesus can find space in here to grow in their faith, to enjoy the life of the kingdom now. And we want this kingdom, this micro-expression of the kingdom of God called the Hallows Church, we want it to be an inclusive place that is represented by a diverse swath of people. We want various shades of skin color present here. We want various languages spoken when we gathered here. We want to be an inclusive church reflecting the inclusive nature of the kingdom of God. Knowing that one day, if we don't like it now, if we don't like inclusion now, we're definitely not going to like heaven. We're not going to like the kingdom of God when it is fully realized in the world. Because his kingdom is an inclusive kingdom and all peoples will be represented there. But not only will all peoples be represented there, any person who associates with Jesus now may inhabit the kingdom now, may enjoy the realized redemptive reign of Jesus now. This is what's going on in verse 33. When Jesus, uh, Mark would then write, with many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. In other words, those who got cued into this were those who drew near to Jesus and associated with him. This means you and I can now live in light of the kingdom of God. We can enjoy the blessing of the kingdom of God, the spiritual reality that it is. We can enjoy it as we associate with Jesus. So yes, all peoples will be represented when the kingdom of God is consummated, but right now, any person who associates with Jesus can currently engage it in this moment. This is why we're here. This is what our church is all about. This is the relationship between the church and the kingdom of God. We are an assembly. We are a group. We are a family of people who associate with Jesus. And as we associate with Jesus, God's kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And the more we associate with Jesus now, the more God's kingdom progressively grows as we serve him towards his final return. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions as we kind of wind this down. As you consider the nature of the kingdom of God as, as, it, as it is presented in this parable, ask yourself, does your heart bristle at any of these? Does your heart bristle at the nature of God's kingdom? Does your heart bristle at the fact that God's kingdom is an alien kingdom? That you can't necessarily look within to find it. You can't necessarily look outside yourself simply to the world to find it. You must look above you to find it. Does your heart bristle at that? Does your heart bristle at the fact that God's kingdom is progressive? And because God's kingdom progressively grows, it's going to require you to exercise faith and patience to not be lured by that which is dramatic, to not be lured by that which is uh, overtly powerful, to not be deceived into thinking that someone else is winning this thing called the world because everything seems chaotic. Does your heart bristle at the fact that the kingdom of God is an inclusive kingdom? Does that cause you to kind of tense up a little bit? If your heart bristles at the nature of the kingdom of God, let me encourage you over these next few moments to confess that, to be honest with Jesus about that, Pray for his grace to eradicate it so that your heart may 
cease to bristle and your heart will begin to enjoy the life Jesus lived, died, and rose to give you now. Let me pray for us and we can confess whatever we need to confess to Jesus over these next few moments as we begin to, as we respond by worshiping through song and prayer and eventually coming to the table. Heavenly Father, I pray that as you, that you would search us and know our hearts, that you would test us. Pray that if you see any anxious ways within us, if our heart is bristling at any of these aspects of your kingdom, I pray that you would give us grace to confess and to repent and to believe your gospel. Help us live in the rhythm of confession, repentance, and faith. Confession, repentance, and faith. I pray, God, that you would realize your reign, your redemption, your rule within us in this very moment by removing any bristle that may be rising within us as we look at your kingdom. Father, I ask and I pray all these things in the name of Jesus, asking for your Holy Spirit to minister to us now. In his name that we pray, amen.